Well, good morning, Gateway. It is good to see you this morning. Just thinking about those last two songs we sang as a congregation this morning, The Rock Won't Move, and it's thinking about His kindness is forever, His mercy is forever. I hope you just realize you've just sung one of the most important attributes of God in those two songs. There's so many attributes of God to describe who He is, His characteristics, but we just sing about, if you want the big word for it, His immutability, His unchangeableness, that God does not change. So realize the depth of what you were just singing in those last two songs, and I hope you realize how precious that is for us. Can you imagine if we followed a God who woke up and had good days and bad days? How absolutely terrifying that would be for us. But we can wake up every morning knowing God does not change. And we sing about the rock won't move. It doesn't matter if we're having a good day or bad day, things are going well or bad. God is unchanging. We can cling to who he is, his character, and his promises. I just want you to treasure what we were just singing. That's a sermon for another day. So now to what we're talking about this morning. Friends, we are in the last chapter of the Gospel of John this morning. We have made it to chapter 21. And we'll spend two weeks in chapter 21 here. We are in our home stretch. This is the next to last sermon from our long series in the Gospel of John. So we come to John chapter 21. If you want to go ahead and be turning there this morning. This is the epilogue, the conclusion of John's letter. These are Jesus' final words that are recorded for us before his ascension when he addresses the disciples there at the time of the ascension. And friends, these words are so important. We'll see this morning they're particularly important for the Apostle Peter. Peter's going to be one of the main characters in this account for us today. Because if we do not have John 21, friends, we have absolutely no idea how Peter goes from John 18 denying Jesus to Acts 1 being the leader of the Apostles and Acts 2 standing up at Pentecost and pronouncing who Christ is and 3,000 coming to faith in Christ. How does a denier of Jesus who's terrified and says, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him, and then he runs away... How does he become the one who's the leader of the apostles? We would have no clue if it was not for John chapter 21. And so this text is very insightful for us on that, how a denier becomes a leader and a powerful preacher. But it's not just important historically for Peter, friends. This is very important for us as well. Because as we see week after week, the gospel of John demands a response from us. And even though we're looking at what Jesus said to his disciples post-resurrection or what he says to Peter, I think this text begs a question for you and me as well. And I think the text makes us ask this. Do we love Jesus enough to follow him when it's costly? Do we love Jesus enough to follow him when it's costly? Now, we sing songs that we love Jesus. We just do it in the worship service this morning. We do it each week. We affirm in song in our services that we love Jesus. We say we love Jesus. We talk about it. But friends, that's the easy part. The question is, do we really love Jesus when it's costly to us? Do we love Jesus when it hurts? Do we love Jesus when he demands us to do things that we don't want to do in our own flesh and our own strength? Do we love Jesus enough to follow him when it's costly? Well, some of us may think when we hear that question, well, of course I do. I'm willing to love Jesus regardless of the cost. Well, this morning's text may trouble us a little bit. Because this morning's text in John 21 shows us that loving Jesus and following Jesus is a lot tougher than a lot of times we give lip service to. It points out to us really how inadequate we are in ourselves to love him and follow him. When asked the question, do we love Jesus enough to follow him when it's costly, some of you may have been troubled going, I can't. And well, if that's you, you're at a good place already because that's what today's text, I believe, shows us as well is that we really can't love Jesus on our own strength enough to follow him when it gets tough. We see our own frailties in this text. We see our, fail- our own failures, much like Peter's failures on this. But so this morning's text in John 20, I, does, I think, gives us not just that question to consider, it gives us hope as well. And so I want to direct us to a main idea from this passage that I want us to explore this morning, and it's this. God gives us grace to love and follow him even when it's costly. 
God gives us the grace we need, friends, to love and follow him even when it's costly. Today's text from John 21 is not what I heard someone at this conference, CJ and I were at this week, he called it white-knuckle determination. You know, the approach to the Christian life, I'm just going to hang on the squeeze really hard and try really hard. This is not a text for us to strive more, to try more, just to try to conjure up more love in my heart for Jesus. That's not it. This text is a text of all about God's grace to us, that you and I cannot love Jesus enough when it's costly. We are in desperate of him to give us the grace, the strength we need to love him and follow him regardless of the cost, and there is a cost to it. And friends, it's very fitting as we come to John 21, as we come to the epilogue of John, the end of John, it's very appropriate that he's talking about grace as well. Because if you think back to the introduction of the Gospel of John, back in John chapter 1, verse 16, Jesus said this to them. And from his fullness, or sorry, John said this, and from his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. If you remember way back 55 sermons ago, when we started John chapter 1, we talked about the waves of grace and how desperate we are for the grace. From the fullness of Christ, we receive the grace we need. So John starts with grace, and though he doesn't use the word grace in John 21 as we come to the end of the book, this is a picture of what he said would happen in John chapter 1. This is the waves of grace over the disciples' life, over Peter's life, and over our lives as well. So as we read John chapter 21, I want us to be looking for what is the cost of following Jesus? It is not laid out for us that way, but there are several cost to following Jesus, several things that make it tough. What, what are those? I want you to be looking for that. But the second of all, where is grace in here? Again, the word grace doesn't appear, but where do we see glimpses of God's grace enabling us to do what we couldn't do in our own strength? So we'll be in John chapter 21. We're going to read from verses 1 through verse 19 this morning. And so can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. If you're a visitor, I'll read out the English Standard Version. John chapter 21, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast it out on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciple came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Verse 9. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net of shore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish... This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. 
Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this text. I'm thankful for all of your word, God, and your kindness to us that we have just sung about. You've not hidden yourself, but you've revealed yourself to us. Just like in your love, you appeared to the disciples here and you revealed yourself to them. God, I thank you through your word now and through the work of your Holy Spirit, you reveal yourself to us. God, I pray you do that this day in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters today, God, that you would, in your kindness through your word being proclaimed, you would reveal yourself to us. God, I pray you'd rock our worlds and change us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So do we love Jesus enough to follow him when it's costly? Well, yes, you can and I can, not because of our determination, but because God gives us the grace we need to love and follow him when it's costly. First of all, I want you to see in this text, what is Jesus calling the disciples to? Let's look back at historically what's happening and what is he calling them to? Look back in chapter 21 at verse number 9. When they got on land, this is the disciples, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. So what is Jesus calling the disciples to? On the surface level, he's calling them to breakfast. I like that. I like breakfast meetings. I like being called to breakfast meetings. Now, this is pretty cool. It's not Chick-fil-A, but this is pretty cool. You know, he's not giving them a chicken biscuit. He's giving them some fish over a charcoal fire, but it's still better than nothing, right? He's calling them to breakfast here in this, and this is really neat because realize at this time, meals were not rushed. There was no fast food, running through the drive-thru, eating by yourself on the way to work. Meals were a social event in this culture. Meals were an invitation to something much more than just food. In this time in Scripture, eating always conveyed fellowship. And don't miss that. Eating always conveyed fellowship. Sharing a meal was so important in the early church, so important in the Jewish culture, so important in Jesus' time, because eating conveyed fellowship, belonging, acceptance, being welcomed. So when Jesus says, come eat breakfast, it's not just, hey, you want to run to Chick-fil-A with me. This is Jesus saying, hey, come give your life relationally with me, to know me, to love me, to follow me. He's inviting the disciples to fellowship with him, to love him back and to follow him. The one who has just given his life on the cross, who's died and risen again, is the one who has now prepared a charcoal fire, put some fish on it, put some bread out there and said, hey guys, come, come sit with me, come eat, come fellowship with me, come follow me. And friends, that's what Jesus still does for us today. We're not sitting down with a fish in front of him, but he's still inviting us like the disciples to fellowship with him, to know him, to be in relational communion and intimacy with him. But that's not the only invitation he gives to love and to follow. He does that to all the disciples here, but he gives a specific invitation to Peter as well. Look at verses 15 and 7 through 17. We'll see the same thing. John 21, 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Now just notice here, Jesus doesn't say, Peter, have you been busy doing things for me? Peter, have you been having your quiet time? Peter, have you been busy evangelizing? Peter, have you been busy since my resurrection you found out about? Have you been busy telling others? He doesn't say that. He goes straight for the heart, for the affections, for what's going on in his inside, his inner man, not what he's doing externally. He's focusing on his heart and his soul and saying, do you love me? Are you willing to follow me out of a love for me? And notice how Jesus goes for Peter's heart, how he just kind of lays bare Peter's heart here. Back in verse 15, this is fascinating to me. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What are the these? Well, in the Greek, it's not specific. These has nothing identified with it. We are left wondering what the these are. And Christians have taken it different ways. So if you disagree with my interpretation, that's quite okay. We can still be friends and function well in the same church if we disagree on this. But let me tell you my understanding of what these things are. Now, first of all, some people say these things may mean the fishing equipment. It may be saying to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than all this fishing equipment? And I think that's a possibility because Jesus calls us to love him more than our careers and everything else. I don't think that's it. Some people think Jesus is saying to to him, Peter, do you love me more than you love these guys you hang out with? That's a possibility as well, because Jesus does call us to love him more than we love anyone else on this planet. But there's a third possibility that some Christians have believed through the years, and this is what I've become persuaded of, though I wasn't persuaded this two weeks ago. My view has changed over the last two weeks of studying this text. And this is what I believe it's saying now. He's saying, do you love me more than these? He's saying, Peter, do you love me more than these men love me? Now, if that seems strange to you, that's okay, because it struck me really odd when I started reading a lot of scholars say this. I'm like, these guys are really off base. There's no way Jesus would be having him compare himself to these other guys. That's, we know we shouldn't compare ourselves, so I'm kind of finding all these excuses, but I'm persuaded now that's what he's saying. He's saying, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these other men around you love me? Why in the world would Jesus be asking that, and what would he be going for? Friends, he's going for Peter's heart, to lay bare Peter's heart, to cause Peter's heart to want to follow him. To make sense of this, we have to go back to Mark chapter 14, and I think we'll have it up on the screen for you there. In Mark chapter 14, and this is what's persuaded me of this interpretation of it, in Mark 14, 27, Jesus, this is the Thursday night when Jesus is betrayed. Before his betrayal, he's talking to his disciples before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is what happens in Mark 14, 27. And Jesus said to them, the number of the, all the disciples, all the 12 of them there, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So he's already warned them they're about to be scattered. Verse 29, Peter speaks up. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. You see what Peter's doing here? He's saying, Jesus, yeah, you say all these other 11 guys, these dudes, they're going to scatter and they're not going to stand up for you. My love for you is better than theirs. I'm not going to fall away, Jesus. I love you more than they love you. My love for you is greater than theirs. And so I will not fall because I love you more. Now, with that in view, we go back and we go back to John chapter 21 again, and we go back to verse 15. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these men love me? He's laying bare Peter's heart. He's exposing Peter's pride. He's exposing Peter's self-sufficiency to think that in his own strength he could choose to love Jesus more than other people could. I believe this is a gracious, kind, loving rebuke of Peter, saying, Peter, yet you thought you loved me more than they did. 
but what's really happening in your heart? Do you really love me as much as you thought you love me? And Jesus in his kindness is humbling Peter because Peter has tried in his own strength to love and follow Jesus, and he has fallen flat on his face in that. Remember back to John 18 when Peter denies Jesus three times and the rooster crows on that. And I think Peter gets what Jesus is saying here. And it's kind of clouded for us because, as you heard me say before, the Greek language is a lot more specific than our English here. And in verses 15 through 17, in these questions that Jesus is asking, it sounds to us all the same. Like when we read it, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Back in verse 15, then he asks him again in 16, do you love me more? Do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? It sounds the same. And Peter each time says, I love you, I love you. So we see the word love six times here, but it's not the same word for love each time. It's fascinating to me, and I think this shows that Peter has finally been humbled and he realizes his own inadequacy here. Because in verse 15, when Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The word Jesus uses here, that John records for us, is the word agape. Agape is, of the different words for love in Greek, is the highest form of love. It is the love God has for man, a covenantal love. that is the most supreme type of love there can be. Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you love me with the greatest type of love there is? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I didn't say agape you, I phileo you. Philadelphia, phileo, the city of brotherly love. Phileo was the Greek word for common love, brotherly affection, friendship love. When you say, I love my friends, you're speaking of a phileo love. And so Jesus says, do you agape me? Do you love me with the highest love? And Peter goes, I love you with a, a common love. And that I think Peter's answer is even revealing for us that he's beginning to get how, fall, how far short he has fallen in his love for Jesus that he thought he could do. And he's now realizing he can't do in his own strength. And it's fascinating because when you get to the third question, Jesus now changes the question the last time in verse 17 to Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Do you love me with a common brotherly love? And that's when he goes, and that's when he's grieving and says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. I love you with the, the best love I can muster up in my own human self here in that. I think Peter realizes that he's called by Jesus to love him and follow him, and he realizes how inadequate he is to do so. And friends, that is a good place for us to be because it kills our self-dependency and drives us to our knees in dependence on the Lord. Well, I think that begs another question from this text for us. Peter's realized through Jesus' questions how hard it is to follow Jesus. Friends, why is it so hard for us to follow Jesus? Why is it so tough for us to follow Jesus? Now, we live in a culture that wants to make believing in Jesus easy. Across the churches of America, there's this idea to simplify and make it to where this is easy. Just believe in Jesus, pray this prayer, walk this aisle, get baptized. You're in the kingdom. You're okay. And as long as you've done that once in your life, you're fine. That's all it takes. But that's not what Scripture portrays for us. We live in a culture that wants to oversimplify what it means to believe in Jesus, but the Scripture doesn't allow us to do that. The Scripture, in fact, shows it's very hard to love Jesus. It's very hard to follow Jesus. And I think our text gives us five illustrations, five, ex- or sorry, not five, four. It helps if I can remember my numbers, right? Four reasons why it's tough to follow Jesus. Four examples of it. Now, remember, this is historical narrative. This was not written to be a four-point outline for us. It's telling us what actually happened in history, hence all the attention to detail of how many fish were in the net and exactly which disciples were on the beach and what the charcoal fire was like. And this is historical for us. But in this history, God sovereignly is giving us a picture, I think, to help us understand why following Jesus can be tough. And so I want to pull some application from this text for us as we come to the end of John of four reasons I think it's tough for us to follow Jesus that should drive us to our knees. Number one, it's hard to follow Jesus because I have to give up my self-reliance. It's hard to follow Jesus because I have to give up my self-reliance trying 
in my own strength. Friends, we are in a culture that prizes the values above just about everything else, not needing help, not needing anyone. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Don't ask for help. Don't be needy. This especially comes in the culture for men in our country. You don't need to come across as needy or dependent in any way. But there's none of that in the Christian life. Remember back from John 15, 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. What is nothing? Nothing. I mean, it's, uh, we are totally dependent upon Christ. And Jesus gives a visual this here for the disciples. I think the reason all this unfolded in the order it did was he was teaching this. So go back to verses 5 and 6. Jesus said to them, he's, they're about 100 yards out in the water, and he speaks to them from shore. He says, children, do you have any fish? He asked them, no. He said to them, cast it out on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. They cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. He's given them a visual to get their attention at the beginning that on their own strength, they're going to come up short. But when they depend upon him, there's a bounty. Maybe thinking, well, Grady, how in the world does this apply to me? I'm not a fisherman. How do I see dependence on the Lord? Can I give you one simple illustration or example of that? How's your prayer life, and how's my prayer life? We may not not be fishermen who are trying to haul in the nets physically like they were trying to do, but friends, if we want to see, am I relying on self or the Lord, our prayer life is a great indicator of it. I find in my own life, friends, the times I'm praying a lot is because I'm sensing my dependence and need of the Lord. I'm sensing my own frailty. And the weeks where I'm not praying much, friends, I'm ashamed to say it's because I'm depending on myself and my strategy and my plans and my schedules and all those type things. Our prayer life is a great barometer for us of am I depending on the Lord? And friends, if we're going to follow Jesus, there's no self-reliance in this. We must be dependent upon him because apart from him, we can do nothing. But following Jesus is tough, not only because I have to give up my self-reliance. Number two, it's because I have to follow God's plans for me, not my own plans. I have to follow God's plans for me, not my own plans. Friends, if we are in Christ, we are not free to map out our life like we want to map out our life. It's not ours to map out. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 reminds us, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Friends, if we are bought, if we're in Christ, that means we don't belong to self anymore. We belong to him. If we belong to him, he has the sovereign right to do with us what he wants to do. We say, Jesus is my Lord. Realize when we say that, we're saying he's my boss my master, and I'm going to follow whatever he said. And we get a glimpse of that in this text as well, that, that if we follow Jesus, it's tough because we have to follow his plan for us, not our own plan here. And we see that with Peter. Now think back. When God called Peter, when Jesus called Peter, Peter was fishing. And Jesus tells him to leave his fishing. He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. He tells him to give up physical fishing and to take on fishing for people, spiritual good of people. But what's Peter doing here in this text? What do we find himself doing? He's back physically fishing in. And don't miss this, friends. He has seen, he's walked with Jesus for three years. He's seen miracle after miracle after miracle. He has now seen the resurrection. He's found the empty tomb. He's seen Jesus in his post-resurrection body. He's seen him appear before the time and say, see, here's my hands, here's my side. He's seen Jesus appear in rooms. He's seen all of this. And is he out fishing for men? Is he out teaching God's people? He is really risen. Is he out telling people, come see Christ is alive? No, what's he doing? He's sitting on the beach kind of twiddling his thumbs. Hey guys, what should we do? I don't know. I'm going to go fishing. Okay, I'll go with you. He has run right back to this old way of life in this. He's not being a fisher of men. He's going back to physical fishing. And Jesus reminds him that's not his calling. He's not free to just go pick whatever career he wants to pick. God has called him to do something specific, and he better get back to it. So verse 17 of John 21. He, Jesus, said to him, Peter, the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus reminds him three times here, feed, feed, feed. Like his job is not to be out on that boat fishing. His job is to be out teaching people who Jesus is because Jesus has the right as his master to tell him how he's to live and what he is to do. And that's not very popular in our culture today. His job is to follow Jesus. Three times he's told, Jesus tells him, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And then two times Jesus says, follow me, follow me. Verse 19, after tell, this is, he says in verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Peter, follow me. He's even saying, Peter, guess what? You're going to be crucified, but guess what? Follow me. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, follow me follow me. Five times Jesus sticks right before Peter. You are not free to go use your day the way you want to use your day. I'm your boss, your master, your Lord, and you get back to what you're called to do. And that's feeding people and following me. And friends, the same is true for us. You and I do not have the right to order our days as we see fit to dream. Our dreams for our lives. Our lives, if we are in Christ, belong to the Lord. And our job is to submit our lives to him, whatever that plan is that he has for us. Which leads to the question, am I seeking God's will for my life? Do I even care? Friends, when was the last time you and I spent time on our face before the Lord saying, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? Or what do you want me to do with this week? Or what do you want me to do with my scheduled day? What do you want me to do with my free time this week? Lord, my life belongs to you. How do you want me to use it this week, this month, or this year? Friends, following Jesus can be really tough because we have to give up self-reliance and we have to follow his plans for us, not our own plans. But number three, following Jesus can be tough because God will discipline me when I sin. God will certainly discipline me when I sin. And can I put in parentheses there? And that's not fun. If, God, if we are in Christ and we are in sin, God will discipline us. He will pursue us. Look at what Hebrews 12 says. It'll be up on the screen for you. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son he receives. That's not, again, the verse we frame and hang up above our sofa, is it? If I am in Christ, he has promised me that he will discipline me, and he will chastise me in his love. Now go down to verse 10. This is comparing what God does to our earthly fathers. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Verse 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Because that's exactly what's happening back in John 21. This is Jesus and his love for Peter, who he's called, pursuing him with a loving discipline that's not fun, but is so good for him. Remember, Peter has sinned. So it's a few weeks ago. Peter has denied Jesus three times. The one he's walked with for three years, he denies Jesus flat out lies three times. I don't know him. I've never known him. Get away from me. I don't know him. Like he has flat out lied and denied any association with Jesus or the disciples. And Jesus and his love has already been pursuing him. Remember when, when Peter did that, the rooster crows and Peter runs out crying. He's already under conviction for that, but there's more conviction. Go back to verse 17 again, John 21. He, Jesus, said to him, Peter, the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. There's that conviction, friends, godly sorrow. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. This conviction of the Lord that grieves Peter breaks him. 
And it produces what we just read in Hebrews 12, 11. It produces a fruit of righteousness in Peter's life. Do you think Peter was having fun when Jesus is like, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. He's not having fun with this. But Jesus loves him enough to not make him happy in the moment or make things easy for him. He loves him enough to give him this uncomfortable conviction to discipline him so that he could have the fruit of righteousness. And that's what happens, friend. We go from John 18, Peter denying Jesus, to Acts 1, he's a leader of the apostle. In Acts 2, he's preaching and thousands are coming to faith in Christ. What changes? The discipline of the Lord for one he loves. Friends, if you and I are in Christ, he will do the same. And can I just say, side note is not in my notes here, but just to remind us of something, friends, if you claim the name of Christ and you have patterns in your life of, of sin that you're not dealing with, and there is no discipline from the Lord, can I plead with you, you may not be a Christian like you think you are? If we are really in Christ, Hebrews 12 is a promise. God disciplines everyone he loves. If you are claiming to be one who's been loved by God and changed by God, and you're persisting in sin that offends God, whatever it may be, big sins, little sins, respectable sins, it doesn't matter what it is, but if we're living contrary to God's work, and there is no sense of God pursuing, no uncomfortableness, no conviction of sin. Friends, I need to plead with you. You may not be in Christ like you think you are. If we are in Christ, he will, as uncomfortable as this, he will discipline us because he loves us to produce a fruit of righteousness in us, much like he did in Peter's life. There's one more thing, I think, in this text that reminds us why it's tough to follow Jesus. Not only is it I can't be self-reliant, not only is it I have to submit to God's plans for me, not my own, Not only is it that God will discipline me when I sin, but the fourth thing is if I'm following Christ, there will probably be suffering. If I'm following Christ, that often will mean there's some type of suffering I will experience for it. This is true for Peter. Look back in John 21, verses 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands. Another will dress and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. To stretch out your hands. This was a common description at the time for crucifixion. Like we would say today, oh, he's resting in peace or he passed away. Stretch out your hands and he would be crucified. Jesus has told Peter, guess what, Peter? You're going to suffer for following me. You're going to suffer for feeding my sheep. You're going to stretch out your hands. You're going to be crucified yourself one day. But it doesn't matter. Follow me. And friends, the same is true for us as well. You think back to John 16, Jesus said, I've come that you may have peace in the world you might possibly, perhaps, on a bad day, have tribulation. It says, in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He's come that we might have peace in the midst of tribulation, not to free us from our tribulation. You've heard me say over and over, friends, but God's plan for us is not to get us from birth to death in the safest, happiest, easiest, healthiest, most comfortable way possible. That's not what God's up to here. He's up to something a lot bigger than just our happiness and our material well-being and all this. He's up to a much bigger plan for us and for himself in this. And friends, that can be tough. Loving and following Jesus is not easy. We can't be self-reliant. We have to follow his plans, not ours. He's going to discipline us when we sin, and it will probably mean suffering in our lives as well. And so friends, back to that opening question. When all those things are happening, when I'm facing suffering for being a follower of Christ, when he's disciplining me for sin in my life, when I'm realizing I can't be self-reliant, when he's calling me to some path for today or for the future that is not what I would have picked out for myself, do I love him enough to follow him in the midst of all that? And friends, I can't. And you can't either. Because there's a gap in our lives between who he's called us to be and where we are. And you nor I have the white-knuckle determination to overcome that gap. And so our hope is either just to keep working harder and white-knuckle it even more, or to despair, or to run to Jesus. 
and to run to Jesus and say, Jesus, my love for you is so inadequate. I'm in the midst of suffering. I'm in the midst of your loving discipline. I'm in the midst of realizing I can't do this on my own because I'm falling flat on my face. God, I'm in the midst of realizing how much I need to follow your plans, but I don't really want to follow your plans. When we get to those points, we either try to just muster up more following, we can despair, or we can run to the cross. And we can cry out because Jesus will give us the grace we need. Not for us to muster it up ourselves, but he will give us the grace we need so we can follow him when it's costly. Do you see how much grace was in this text in this? Look back at verse 1. We're just going to fly through four verses. I want you to see grace all throughout this text before we close this morning. Because notice who's doing the seeking here. Are the disciples looking for Jesus? Are the disciples looking for Jesus? No, the disciples are not looking for Jesus here. Verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples. So who's doing the revealing? This is the right sentence. Who's doing the revealing? Jesus, yeah, he's the one who's doing the revealing here. He's taking the initiative. Verse 6, look down at it. He, Jesus, said to them, cast the nail on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. Who's doing the calling? Who's doing the calling? Jesus is doing the calling here. He found them at their point of need. I mean, think back to the very thing that Drew showed us last week, that he met them at their very point of need. He finds people where they are, at their weakest, where they need help, and he comes to them in the midst of all that. And Jesus is doing that here. They are flustered. They're on the boat. They've not caught anything. And Jesus, in their point of need, comes and says, Hey, here's the fish you need. Go on the other side of the boat. Verse 12, look down at it. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. So who's the one inviting? Who's the one inviting? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is the one doing the inviting here. But notice they don't respond. So verse 13 here. This is fascinating. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. So Jesus says, come and eat. Do they come and eat? No. So Jesus picks up the bread, picks up the fish, and he takes it to them. He's the one pursuing them even when they are not pursuing him in this. And friends, even the questions he gives to Peter are grace because he loves them. He did it for Peter's good, for the good of the church, and for God's glory. And I'd encourage you later today... Go back and read the beginning of 2 Peter, when Peter writes to the church, to the people of what his God has done in his life, and look for grace in there, because he's experienced God's power working in him, and he now pleads others to experience it as well. So go read the beginning of 2 Peter and look at this grace that he's talked about. So friends, do we love Jesus enough to follow him when it's costly? I can't. You can't. But when God's grace, we can. God gives to you and to me the grace we need to follow him and to love him even when it's costly. So as we close, I just want to ask you a few questions this morning. What is it that Jesus is calling you to do? He's calling every one of us to something in here. What is Jesus calling you to do? I know there are some in this room who've never trusted Christ. In a room this size, there's people who have never put their hope and faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Just as Jesus pursued and called the early disciples, come follow me. I think for some of you today, Jesus is calling to you. You've heard the gospel of John week after week after week. And Jesus is calling to you saying, come follow me. Come follow me follow me. And can I just plead with you, if that's you, to put down your self-reliance, put down whatever sin you're clinging to that's keeping you from Jesus, and run after Jesus as he calls you. For others of you, what's Jesus calling you to? Perhaps you followed him and trusted him, but you've never followed him to be baptized. The way people confess their faith in Christ is not walking down an aisle of a church. People ask me all the time, why don't you do a big invitation at the end of the service? Because that's not the way the New Testament shows us that we confess faith in Christ. Our culture is confused walking down an aisle as being a profession of faith in Christ. Baptism is a profession of faith in Christ in the New Testament. Some of you have trusted Christ, but you've never publicly confessed to others that I am a follower of Christ. Baptism is the God-given symbol for that. Perhaps Jesus is calling you to pursue him and to be baptized. But perhaps some of you have believed in Jesus and you've been baptized, and yet you're looking at your life and you're seeing the, this gap between who Christ has called you to be and 
who you are, whether it's in your love for him or your affections for him or your following him. And Jesus is calling you today to say, stop striving, stop trying. Pursue me, find grace. And, you, and he's calling you to cry out for grace and not for human effort. Perhaps for some of you, you believe in Jesus, been walking with him, but there's some sin that you're just not letting go of. And God in his discipline this morning is going to pursue you like he pursued Peter when Peter was denying him. It was a sin of anger or pornography or some sexual immorality, some sin of people-pleasing tendency, some sin of pride, of lying, of materialism, and we could go on and on through what the scripture calls sin. And perhaps Jesus is calling to you and the Holy Spirit is calling to you, give this up, give this up, not try harder, but let me give you grace to give this up and to find hope in the gospel. Maybe something else Jesus is calling you to do. So, for instance, in just a minute, we're going to stand and sing. And as we sing, my prayer for you is that whatever Jesus is calling you to do, that you'll find the grace you need from him to obey him. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful that you love us so much, that you've revealed yourself to us, that, God, that you break us of sins in our life, that you are sanctifying us and growing us. And, God, we long for the day that you will glorify us and take us on to be with heaven when the struggles of this world go away. But, God, until then, we know life will be tough. But God, we are so grateful that you love us so much that, God, you give us the grace we need. So Lord, we confess this morning our love for you is so inadequate. God, we can't muster up enough love and desire to follow you, but God, you can pour that in our hearts. So Lord, in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters today, God, would you right now, by the work of your Holy Spirit, taking your word, fill our hearts with the grace we need that our love for you might increase today, our affections for you might increase, our delight in you might increase, and Lord, our desire to obey and walk in holiness might increase, not because of our own will and our own effort, but because of you at work in us. So God, would you have your way transforming us as your people, that the people of Gateway might be a people set apart wholly unto you, not for self, God, but to please you and to make you known right here in Montgomery and all over the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?